I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. You can do that in a paper Bible, an electronic Bible. Reach to, into the pew in front of you, that rack, and, and grab a Bible. Uh, you can be doing that. We're going to be in, in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, but you can be looking for that as I give you the introduction. You know, when the time comes for each of us to enter the last phase of our life, fair or not, we will be remembered not on how we started, but on how we finished. Not even the middle of our lives. It will be on how we finish our relationships and how uh, we treat other people, how we live our life for Christ in those last days. And it will certainly be uh, whether or not we end well or end poorly. From the time that I was a young boy, it seemed that I was always playing basketball. My mom even showed me a picture of me when I'm probably a year, year and a half, and there's a full-size basketball right there next to me. And I played on basketball teams from school teams from elementary through high school. My parents put a hoop above our garage, and I would play for hours pretending that I was Jerry West, the legendary guard of the Los Angeles Lakers in the 60s and 70s. Now, here's something about the game of basketball. Even though uh, players spend most of the game running or sprinting up and down a 94-foot court, no basketball player ever enjoys running without a basketball. But in order to be at the top of our game, my coaches would always have us running. We would run wind sprints. We would run what was called a train. And that is when you have the whole team jogging around the court, and then the coach would blow a whistle, and the guy at the end of the train has to run past and pass everybody else before you make it all the way around the court, or you're in trouble. And then that happens for every player until everybody has completed that train. We would run repeated 220-yard dashes. The coaches figured that running a 220-yard dash was about the same as running up and down the court. So we would, uh, in, in groups of five or six, run halfway around that 440 track, quarter-mile track, and then we would walk quickly back to the starting line and do it again, over and over again, as many as 12 times in a row. We would run what is called suicides, which is starting at the baseline, sprinting out to the free throw line, touch it, run back, touch the baseline, run to half court, touch it, run back, touch it, run all the way to the other side, free throw line and back, and then all the way full court, touch it and back. And you had to do that in 30 seconds or you got another one added. And there were punishments for sloppy practices or mental lapses, and those punishments were more running. Basketball players laugh at cross-country runners and track athletes. We used to have this saying, my sports punishment is your sport. (laughs) And then this basketball player married a cross-country runner. She continued running through high school, college, the early years of our marriage, and she continues to run to this day. Now, many of you know that almost five years ago, I had a very serious abdominal surgery. It was completely successful thanks to uh, a church member here, one of our church family at FAC, who is an expert surgeon in his field. But my recovery was slow, and I was told that it would be slow. 
my first excursion outside the house was to walk from our house two houses down. And this is on city blocks, so the houses are really close together. And then back two houses. Now, I seriously considered stopping at that second house and sending, sending Cindy back to get our car and then come and drive me home. Eventually, I was able to walk down the street and then around the block. And many months later, I decided to join Cindy on her Saturday morning excursions to Presque Isle. She would run four miles, and I would walk one mile. And yes, we ended at the same time. Then one Saturday, after walking half mile to my turnaround point, I decided I was going to try to see if I could jog slowly back to where I started. And I was able to do it without even stopping. I kept at it, adding a little bit more over time, a little bit further, a little bit faster pace, until I was able to run three miles, pausing only at the halfway point to walk uh, just a, a little circle and then continue on. The following Thanksgiving, 14 months after my surgery, Cindy and I ran the turkey trot together, 3.1 miles. It was certainly a highlight of my recovery. And I've continued to run with a few setbacks, few little injuries here and there, but I always look forward to relacing my running shoes and going back out. Today's message uses the illustration of running a race to encourage us to do well in our life, including the finishing of the race of life. So let's read this passage together. I'm going to pick it up here at verse 1, just like we read earlier. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We don't know who the human author of Hebrews is. In other words, who was it that put pen to paper and wrote those words? But we do know who really the author of this book, as well as every book of the Bible is, and that is the Holy Spirit of God the one who was telling those human authors what words to write and in what order to write them. We know that from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 that say, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I find it interesting that that human author of Hebrews chooses the metaphor of the long-distance race to illustrate the Christian life. The Christian life is a matter of endurance, and yes, sometimes that does include difficulty. But we know without any doubt that there is victory. There is victory both now and obviously there will be victory when we cross the finish line and enter heaven. But between now and then, there are certainly times of struggle and difficulty. That might be one of the reasons why we have an English word in this passage, one that we have actually borrowed from the Greek language. And that Greek word translated race is literally 
let us run the agonia. Does that sound like an English word that you've heard? A word that many of you might associate with long-distance running? Agonia sounds a lot like the English word agony, doesn't it? Anyone who has run long distances knows that you can, that can be an accurate description of what you're going through, especially if you are running as punishment, either because your coach wasn't satisfied with your performance or because you were punishing yourself for having those four slices of double uh, pepperoni stuffed crust ultimate supreme pepperoni pizza. Your lungs are screaming and your thighs are burning and maybe you're even getting blisters on the bottoms of your feet. And yes, it can be agony and it can be a struggle. So this agonia is a picture of the Christian life. We are all spiritual athletes on that racetrack, running the race that has been set before us by God himself. It is our duty, our responsibility to run. Now, a race must also be characterized by progress. There's a starting line and there's a finishing line. The gun goes off and the runners begin to run and they make progress one foot after another towards that goal. That's very similar to the Christian life. In fact, the key word in the Christian life is not the word perfection. We will only achieve perfection in heaven once we are there and God makes us into the mirror image of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we reflect his son, our savior. But that's not the key word in your Christian life now. The key word now on earth is not perfection, but progression. Here's the important question to ask yourself. Are you making progress in your Christian life? As a spiritual athlete running this Christian ultra marathon that God has called us to run? Are you further along today than you were last week or last month or a year ago or three years ago? That can be hard to know, can't it? Remember when you were much younger, like maybe in elementary school, and if you were anything like me, you always wanted to know, am I growing? And if your parents were somewhat like mine, uh, we had this closet door uh, that opened that that shut the water heater in it, and they would open it, and I would stand against it, and they would put the yardstick on top of my head and mark that off, and then they would measure it and put, you know, the, the feet and the inches and the date and my name. But it never felt like I was really growing. But then you might have a visit from a relative who doesn't see you very often, And Aunt Mildred's comment was, oh, look how much Johnny has grown. Now, when you try to see the growth and you're measuring Monday's measurements against Sunday, it's hard to see. But if you're measuring the fourth grade versus the third grade, you're much more likely to see growth. And the same principle applies in our spiritual life. Another part of the spiritual race is the importance of direction. You've got to run in the right direction, run towards that finish line. In fact, if you run around in circles, you will never win. If you run backwards, go the opposite direction where you're supposed to go, you'll never get to the finish line. If you violate the rules and run across the boundaries, not only will you not finish, but you'll be disqualified. It's important that you run in the right direction. Now, I'm going to share an illustration with you that I've shared with you before, but I think it's very appropriate for this. 
This is back in 1928 when Berkeley was playing Georgia Tech in the Rose Bowl. There was a fumble on the field, and a player named Roy Regals picked it up. And in all the confusion, he starts running with the ball. It was actually the the longest run of the entire game, 80 yards, dodging tackles, getting by people. And finally, he was tackled about one yard before the goal line by his own teammates because he was running the wrong direction. When he picked up the fumbled ball, he got turned around and started running in the wrong direction. And for the rest of his life, he was known as Wrong Way Regals. If we're going to run this race successfully, we have to run in the right direction. There is one main point that God is driving at in these three verses, and it's found at the end of verse 1. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance this Christian life. But God doesn't have us uh, leave us with only that advice. He tells us three things that we need to know and three ways to go about that. And the first is that we stand on the shoulders of others. This is found at the beginning of verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Now, who is this great cloud of witnesses? Maybe you're thinking, oh, that's my grandmother. She was a wonderful Christian, and she's gone on to heaven, and she's there in the grandstands watching and maybe applauding me. Or I know who that is. That was, that's my Sunday school teacher who led me to the Lord when I was a little boy or girl. And they've gone on to their reward in heaven, uh, but I think that they're watching me from heaven. Now, whether or not those Christians who have influenced our lives actually do see or witness what we are doing here on earth, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because the Bible doesn't tell us. One thing I do know is that that is not the primary meaning of this verse. So what does it mean? Now, first of all, do you notice that strong conjunction at the very beginning of the first verse of chapter 12? It says... um, Therefore, so it is connecting the beginning of chapter 12 with the end or the, of chapter 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, today when we talk about a cloud, we're talking about a collection of servers and host software and infrastructure that is accessed through the Internet. It's storage, right? But that's not what this meant. In the first century, a cloud was used to describe a great company of people. Now, who is this crowd or this great cloud of witnesses who's talked about or referred to in Hebrews 12? Well, you have to look back at Hebrews chapter 11. In the the very beginning, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, and the it means the faith, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now that last phrase in Greek could literally be translated, men of old obtained a good witness. So now at the end of chapter 11, after the author introduces us to all these great men and women of the faith, uh, Abraham and Moses and David and, and Jephthah and all of these wonderful heroes of the faith, Now we come to chapter 12, and the author says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
This cloud is the great men and women of the faith of the Old Testament. And what's encouraging about this list of faithful men and women is that virtually all of them are also described in Scripture as being people of weakness, people of failure, people who sinned. Are you surprised by that? It's good to remind ourselves that no one is perfect, but even so that we can run the race with faith, remembering those upon whose shoulders we stand. Great men and women of faith who have gone on before us testify that the the life worth living for Christ is the life of faith. Now, by analogy and application, it is also appropriate to apply this to anyone upon whose shoulders you stand as a Christian today. I think about Pastor Samsvik, the senior pastor of the church where I grew up. He was there for 25 years. And on a special uh, Sunday night service, it was uh, uh, the children's ministry program. And I stood up in front of the whole church when I was in elementary school and quoted a passage of Scripture. And I remember to this day that Pastor Samsvik came into our Sunday school classroom afterwards and told everybody that someday I was going to be a preacher. Now, I'm sure that he went to all the classrooms to encourage the kids, and he may have even said that to a couple of others, that specific phrase. But I didn't take that to heart and determine at the age of 9 or 10 that I was going to be a pastor. That didn't actually happen for another 25 or 30 years. But God kept that memory in the back of my mind until the day that I did make that decision and reminded me of what Pastor Samsvik had said so many years before. I remember my pastor when I was in my early 30s, Dr. David Haig, encouraging me to take a step of faith and oversee our church's missions program. Neither one of us knew at that time what this would lead to, but he saw potential in me and he encouraged me. And of course, my parents and my grandparents who faithfully prayed for me, even though I was moving my family, including their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, 2,000 miles away in order to fulfill what God had called me to. Now, these are not famous people. And if I hadn't mentioned them to you this morning, you probably never would have heard of them until the day in heaven when Jesus reveals all of these stories. But each one of them played an important role in my life, and I wouldn't be here today if it were not for their faithfulness. God tells us that there's a second thing we need to do as we're running the Christian race, and that's also found in verse 1. God calls us to lay aside every weight. That means anything that would impede our progress and hold us back, including the sin which clings so closely. Another translation phrases that, and the sin which so easily entangles us. You can't run the long-distance race if you're impeded by any kind of weight that is holding you back. It's counterproductive. We have to shed those things. I remember seeing a picture of Muhammad Ali when he was training for a fight, and he was out doing road running, and he wasn't wearing running shoes. He was wearing army boots so that it would build up his endurance. You've probably seen baseball players swinging a bat in the on-deck circle, and they've got that weighted circle, it's called a donut, on the end of their bat, which makes it more difficult to swing a bat. 
building up their strength. And we've seen football players running with a weighted sled that's tethered to their waist. All of these encumbrances are only for training. When Muhammad Ali got in the ring with an opponent, he was no longer wearing his army boots. When a player moves from the on-deck circle to the batter's box, he takes that weighted donut off of his bat. And we've never seen a football player get into a game chasing around the other football players and still have that weighted sled tethered to his waist. No athlete in their right mind would do these things. It's a hindrance to their competition. Now, if that's true, why do so many of us try to live the Christian life, run the Christian race with these encumbrances? Whether it's a load of bitterness or anger or guilt or regret over past failures, why would we do that? You can't run that way. You can't succeed in the Christian life that way. You must, as the Greek word says, lay aside, meaning to cast off anything that would hinder you. When I think of casting off, it reminds me that the Greek runners back in the early Olympic times would come to the starting line wearing these long flowing robes. But when they stepped up to the starting line, they would cast those things off. Because you don't try to run a sprint wearing a long flowing robe. God says that we are to discard not only the weights, but he also tells us to set aside the sin. Now, since he uses that singular for sin rather than plural sins, some of you might think that he's referring to that particular sin that each of us struggles with the most. We all have that sin that we continually struggle with. For some, it's internet pornography. For somebody else, it's anger. For maybe somebody else, it's lying or, or maybe deceit. God is saying that we have to get rid of the sin that weighs us down. While it's certainly true that we ought to do that, I don't think contextually that's what this is referring to. In the context leading into chapter 12, and we always need to study the Bible in context, the human author of Hebrews is begging the Jewish Christians to not give in to the great sin of faithlessness in the Christian life. He's just listed a host of heroes in the faith in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, great men and women of the faith who by faith won the victory. And that's the reference here. The sin that so easily entangles is the lack of such faith. The Christian life begins in faith, but it doesn't stop there. You've got to live every day by faith. In fact, at the end of chapter 10, uh, leading into chapter 11, the author quoted from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, that says, the just shall live by faith. You don't just accept Christ through faith. You live the Christian life by faith. That's the focus leading up to this passage. But I know some of us don't like living by faith. That's not easy. We want to live by sight. It would be so much easier if God just told us everything, even the details of what we should do in certain circumstances. It's much more difficult to live by faith. The word for entangle is a Greek word that literally means to bind. 
I can kind of picture that. You know, you see somebody running and, and they get all tangled up, maybe in a tree branch or, or somebody left a rope down on the ground and you get all tangled up and fall. Some of us are so bound by our lack of faith that we can't run the race well. We're clumsy and we can't run far and it's tiring. Now God makes his main point. Having laid aside every weight and the sin that so fits us like a glove, that so wraps itself around us, let us run with endurance the race marked out before us. You see that little phrase, with endurance? It's placed at the very front of the clause so that the Greek actually reads this way. With endurance, let us run the race that has been set before us. The focus is on endurance. When in baseball you're stealing second base or driving the lane for a layup in basketball or running the 100-meter dash, speed is crucial. It is essential. But when you're running the ultramarathon, the long-distance race, speed is not what's critical. Endurance is what is critical. Let me give you an illustration of this. Back in 1983, Australia hosted its ultramarathon now, you know what a marathon is, right? That's 26 miles. An ultra marathon, it, it can be different amounts, but the one in Australia in 1983 was a 660-mile foot race from Sydney to Melbourne. It's a race that takes almost a week to run. And professionals, professionals from all over the world came to participate in this race. And shortly before the race began, back in 1983, a 61-year-old sheep herder named Cliff Young, wearing overalls and galoshes over his boots, walked up to the registration table and requested a number to enter the race. The people at the registration table thought it was a joke, and so they started laughing. But Cliff said, no, I really want to run. And people thought that it was still a joke, but they decided to give him the number and they pinned it on his overalls. He walked to the start of the race. And then, of course, there's all those professional runners there who were decked out in their running gear. And they looked at him like he was crazy. Spectators began to laugh. They laughed even more when the gun went off and the race began because all of those professional runners with their sculpted legs and, and their beautiful strides made their way out and began to run. But Cliff didn't. He didn't even run like a runner. He ran with this awkward, goofy-looking shuffle. All through the crowd, people were laughing. And finally, somebody yelled out, Get that old fool off the track. Five days, 14 hours, and four minutes later, at 1.25 in the morning, Cliff Young shuffled across the finish line of the 660-mile ultramarathon. He had won the race. And it wasn't even close. He didn't win by a matter of minutes or even an hour or two. The second-place runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind him. Not only had he won, he set a world record. And so uh, it seemed unbelievable. The press came and they're trying to figure out what happened. So they're, they're looking at his to see if he's got special running shoes and they see his, his boots. They're looking in his backpack to see if maybe he had some special protein drink or energy bar. He had survived that race on pumpkin seeds and water. And that's when it was discovered. Nobody ever told Cliff Young 
that when you run an ultra marathon, you run for 18 hours straight and then you sleep for three or four hours. Cliff Young had shuffled his way to victory without ever sleeping. He ran the entire five days, 14 hours and four minutes at the age of 61 without ever stopping to rest or sleep. With endurance, let us run the Christian ultra marathon. Now, I know that some of you today are facing unbelievable problems. Some of you are hurting deeply. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe you're, you're struggling with grief and loss. Some of you have struggled so long with a particular sin that you've become desperate for release from that one way or another. And you feel like your strength is waning and you feel discouraged in the Christian's ultra marathon. With endurance, let us run the race. Let's look at the last way that God describes how we're to run the race. He tells us to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the third thing we need to do, and it's found in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Our gaze cannot be on those great men and women of the faith. Our focus cannot be on those who personally impacted us in our Christian walk. We can't look to a Christian leader who inspires us. Because if we do, sooner or later, though they won't mean to, they will let us down. We can't look at those people as godly as they may be, because if we focus on them, because they are imperfect people, they could let us down. I can't focus on them. Because they are imperfect people. They have feet of clay just like we do. But there is that one person that we can focus our gaze upon every moment of every day as we're enduring this ultra marathon and running the Christian race. We can and should keep our eyes continually and constantly focused on Jesus. He will never let us down. If you look at others, they will disappoint you. If you look at yourself, you'll become discouraged. But if you look at Jesus, you will never be discouraged or disappointed. He will lift you up. The Holy Spirit says that we are to fix our gaze and to look constantly at the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. What does that mean? Well, the word author means that Jesus is the pioneer. He is the leader of the faith. He got it all started. I'm in this race because of him. Had he not paid the price for my sins, I wouldn't be in this Christian life. He is the one who is the pioneer, the author of faith. And when I cross the finish line and enter heaven's gates, I will fall into his arms. He will be there at the end because he is the finisher of my faith as well. The intention of the Greek words is to give the implication that Jesus is the start, Jesus is the finish, And Jesus is with us every step of the way. So I am to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author of my faith, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now I know why I'm to look at Jesus. He also ran the spiritual ultra marathon. He came into this world in a manger in Bethlehem. He took on human flesh. So he became what I am. While he remained who he is, God, 
He became who we are, human. So he is the God-man. And he lived among us for 33 years, a sinless life. He is the one to whom I am to look. Notice the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, what does that mean, the joy set before him? I think it's a reference to the completion of the will of God for his life. Knowing that God's will was that Jesus would suffer and die for our sins. That's why I love Jesus so much. Because he never asked me to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. He ran the race. He endured. And now he calls on me to run and to endure. And I am to keep my eyes fixed on him. Now the word for fixed describes not being distracted. But rather like a lover who has their gaze fixed on their beloved. Fixing our eyes on Jesus and no one and nothing else. Now God makes the application. In verse 3, he says, Consider him who endured. Did you notice that there is one word that incurs, occurs in all three of these verses, and that is the word endure. With endurance, let us run the Christian's ultramarathon. And now, because Jesus has endured, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Think of everything that Jesus went through. When he began his ministry, Jesus was tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness, and he endured. When his own family didn't understand him and they thought that he had gone insane, he endured. When his early followers also misunderstood him, he endured. When those followers of his began to fall away, he endured. When the Pharisees told their lies about him, he endured. When the Sadducees came up with their uh, conniving ways to try to trick him or trap him, he endured. When Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, he endured. When he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and his sweat was like great drops of blood, as he pled with the Father facing the cross the next day, he endured. As the temple guard came and arrested him in the garden, he endured. As all of his 11 disciples scattered, he endured. As he went through mocking and suffering of six illegal trials through the night and the early morning, he endured. As he watched Peter with cursing deny that he ever knew Jesus, he endured. As he heard the crowds crying out, crucify him. And when he could have called 10,000 angels to his side, he endured. As he experienced the trial before Pilate and saw Pilate wash his hands and give him over as an innocent man to the crowd to be crucified, he endured. When the soldiers mocked him and spat on him and slapped him with their hands and said, prophesy who hits you, he endured. When they thrust a crown of thorns upon his brow in excruciating pain, he endured. When a Roman soldier raised his whip and ripped the flesh off the back of Jesus, he endured. When he carried that cross down the Via Della Rosa, outside the city gate, he endured. When they laid him upon the cross of Calvary and they nailed spikes into his hands and feet, he endured. 
As the two thieves who were crucified him flung their invictives in his face, he endured. And as the callous crowd mocked him, he endured. As Satan himself came against Jesus with all his forces of hell while he was on the cross, he endured. As God himself caused the foul sewers of our sin to come gushing forth and flooding him on the cross, in the midst of it all, he endured. Jesus endured all the way to death, and he cried out, It is finished! As they laid his body in the grave, and he arose, and forty days later Jesus ascended into heaven and seated himself at the right hand of the throne of God, and there is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He endures on our behalf. He endures. Therefore, God says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, we come to you this morning knowing what you have called us to and knowing that you have not left us alone to accomplish this task. You have not called us to a sprint. You have called us to an ultra marathon, but you have not called us to anything that you have not gone through yourself. So, Father, I pray that those who are hearing this message and maybe have never committed themselves to you I pray, Father, that this would be the day of salvation, that they would call upon the name of Jesus and say, I am a sinner and I need to be saved by grace through faith so that I can run this, this ultra marathon with endurance because of the, of what Jesus has done on my behalf. And for my brothers and sisters who have already put their faith and trust in you, and are living for you, they may be discouraged, Father, and so I lift them up to you. Don't allow them to remain in discouragement, Father, but lift them up. Lift their gaze up from their problems so that their gaze is focused on you. And may they all finish the, the, uh, go across the finish line gazing upon you to receive their reward in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.